Smart Council is a production of New Pattern Counseling, with additional support from Multnomah University. To learn how to support this podcast, visit patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Reese Basimio is a counselor, teacher, and writer, and the founder of New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon. His clinical specialties are addictions, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. Thanks for listening. Smart Council provides perspectives and resources on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. I'm Reese Pisimio here this morning with Shay Layton. Uh, good morning, Shay. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, it's always great to see you and talk with you. Uh, so uh, for the listener who doesn't know you, uh, uh, who are you and what do you do and what do you have to do with the world of counseling, psychology, et cetera, et cetera? I am, the two labels I would title myself would be a practical theologian and a life coach. Uh, and those might be combined one to one topic in my book, but basically studying the history of Christian spirituality and how our beliefs about God are practical. Um, But where this shines specifically, uh, and one of the the areas I like to study is belief. And whether that's like you mentioned, healing the political divide, or studying conversion experiences or cults, um, why we believe what we believe, why we doubt which ties in to a lot of my life coaching practice. Um, these are my areas of study. That's yeah, just a just a little bit of stuff, just a little bit of life experience contained in there. Uh, so, uh, which when you've talked about studying belief, that I mean, we've talked a bit about that in theological, spiritual terms, but um, but that also plays a factor, a major factor in political beliefs as well and um, policies we support or not, or movements we support or not, and assumptions we make or not. And uh, I know a lot of your study has has geared around that. So, uh, and yeah, uh, so you work as a life coach and you study a lot. I know, um, remind me, did you, um, you majored in psychology? Yeah. Cool. So, uh, I know, um, I know I've wanted to have this conversation for a while, A, because I like you, <laughs> but also uh, I know I've really been struck by a lot of the thoughts and ideas that you put out. And I know you, uh, you had an opportunity to create a, create a lecture called Healing the Political Divide, which now exists on YouTube. Um, what was the, say again, what was the, what was the context behind what that was and how that came together? I spent after so i grew up pretty conservative in your typical conservative circles concerned with the constitution and liberty and such things and lived ended up living in port moving to portland for bible college living there eight years you know that's right where we met and uh the last four years i was in portland i just spent a lot of time just living there getting to know 
local Portland people meeting feminists, LGBT, uh, groups that I had not grown up around and had been mostly demonized to me. And after hearing them out, I started to realize that they made some really good points. But I go back to Spokane and hear some of the conservative responses, some of the things the conservatives were concerned about. And as I was going back and forth between these two spaces, I, I couldn't help but notice that I I think that, that these aren't as opposed as we think, these two sides aren't as opposed as we think they are. The conservative and liberal sides are not as opposed as we think we are. They just have different, yeah. si different sides of the same concern. Yeah, and when I think when they, they talk to each other and hear each other out and fact in, factor in each other's concerns, um, they come up with overall better policies that are more comprehensive and nuanced. So this, this kind of culminated in, a, it happened through a lot of conversations with my parents who started, who were, are very conservative, very um, constitutionally minded, but they started realizing there was, uh, there was some truth to this too. And they convinced a, one of our local uh, Republican groups to let me um, come speak on the subject on my research of psychology and belief and politics. And they, I think they expected I was going to give them a talk on getting young people to be conservatives um, <laughs> because they knew it had something to do with reaching people. Uh, but I, I went a little more neutral with it. Um, and I, this, the speech was particularly geared so that people across this political spectrum would both find it agreeable and um, healthily challenging. So that, and that was about, about two summers ago. Okay. I feel like that really came through in how you talked about it. And cause you, you were talking about um, both sides, but, and like you said, not, not specifically like Republican versus Democrat, but much more like broadly conservative versus broadly liberal and would uh, summarize some, some big belief statements that trend in both sides. Um, and, you know, I felt like you were able to um, bring out the best of both sides to each other, as well as, you know, um, identify some some substantial critiques of both sides either. So uh, my perspective of, of, your, of your lecture was was pretty, pretty fair, pretty well rounded, very, very neutral. Um, and again, going for the, the, the relationship between the two uh, as being maybe more important. So with this whole idea, with this whole idea of, of belief, uh, study, studying belief. So what, do tell what are um, from what you've learned in your studies. Um, why do people believe what they believe, or or how? What's the process by which a person comes to hold a core belief as core belief? Well, whatever it it seems to be, whatever the brain, whatever's normal for the brain is what it interprets as true. Um, I, I recall in the book Out of the Silent Planet by C.S. Lewis, there's a point at which he, he the, the main character Ransom lands on this new planet. He's never been on it, never been on another planet. And as he comes out of this spaceship for the first time and he sees all the, the what he assumes are plants, it all just looks like a huge color blur to him. Uh, and he, he never realized that all his time seeing trees, his brain only knew what they were because he'd seen them so many times. So he could see this blotch of green on a mountain and he could recognize that it was trees. But when he's on this new planet with things he's never seen, 
his brain doesn't even know where to begin. And so it's all just a patch of colors. Most of the time we operate in life, we're going off of something that we don't realize we only understand because we've seen it half a million times. And so those rare moments when we find out that we are wrong are so jolting because most of the time the brain goes off of what is normal to it. So if you, if you meet a person of a certain skin color and you have a bad experience a couple times, you end up thinking that all people of that skin color might have that tendency, even if it's not true. The, the practical side of all this is that if you want to positively affect someone, you create a new normal for them. So if they have had bad experiences with your political group or your religion or whatever it is, um, giving them a chance to experience something different and more positive helps them open up to things that maybe weren't open before to them. So that was a, that's a big point in my speech uh, on politics. Um, it's a big point for evangelism. It ties to a lot of different things. So. Yeah. So creating a new, cre creating a new normal for the person. Um, so you see, I mean, we can't just like um, yell at people and expect them to change. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We we think we think people work. Uh, when I say this very often in life coaching too, to kind of frame things. We think people work like computers that you put in a logical command and you get a logical function out, you know, oh, I thought this logically and I'm making the wrong decision. I'm going to just make the right one as, as if, and that's not true to any of our experience, but we'll talk about like, think about it like that. We'll complain about our emotions, but oh, emotions, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, uh -huh. man, you be an empty, unhappy robot without emotions. Like it would just, For sure. but we don't think through it. We're just kind of reacting. But uh, the way what's I would say a more accurate metaphor than a computer is that we work like a marinade. Uh, so whatever you soak us in, whatever we dwell on, we whatever is around us constantly, we absorb the properties of yeah. uh, this. This is why Christianity has lots of repetition historically, not because it's earning something, but because when you marinate in something you want to become, it affects. Right. And we, we even with like you said, with the yelling thing, you know, you yell at someone, the property that stands out is the yelling and the anger. So they start to absorb how upset you are. The words kind of go to the side. So. Mm -hmm. I thought, I thought of this sometimes, I mean, especially um, more with, more within church circles when we would talk about evangelism and sending mission missionaries out. And, uh, and I think it especially stood out when with the thought of extending like, uh, white American evangelical missionaries to places like like the Middle East uh, into the heart of Islam, et cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, thinking we have this amazing truth and we need to share it with people and we really care about them and we want them to be, be better. Okay, maybe we have good intent. But um, but but I would think about that from, from my perspective and thinking, okay, so I'm pretty comfortable within my own tradition. Well, uncomfortably comfortable. <laughs> uh, I'm not interested in changing my spiritual beliefs at, at this point. Like I'm interested in having them grow in what they are. But for me, I mean, like, this is what I believe. Like, uh, like within my head, I can't imagine uh, abandoning this truth that I found for a whole nother paradigm or, uh, you know, abandoning one religion for another um, short of like trauma, which that, that's, a, that's a tangent we'll hopefully get to. 
Um, so, so, so I would, I would watch the, these people preparing to do demissions work thinking you're going to go and try to convince people to, um, leave this really fundamentally core internal aspect of themselves that's been shaped by their whole lives, all of their family, all of their culture, and just change it because you're a good preacher. Uh, and something about that always felt like it was missing. Be like, we're not interested in changing. Why are we expecting other people to be interested in changing? And, uh, and I think, uh, I've noticed that a lot as well. What were you talking about? Like the difference between, uh, a logical debate with somebody and, creating a different experience um that's come up with clients a lot too like especially when we're talking about like couples who are in conflict or uh or anything or when we're responding to crisis like um we might or or when people try to make make decisions uh we'll want to default to to logic default to thoughts default to well here's what i'm thinking here's what i'm seeing here's how i've thought through things here's my side of the debate now i want you to align with my side of the debate but there's this whole realm of like, like what's going on emotionally? Like what are the emotional undercurrents? And, and even deeper than that, like what's your body response? Cause you know, your body experiences these things too. And, uh, and it does feel like an, a, it, it's a foreign thing for people to factor in like the emotions in the body into their decision-making and the conflict resolution skills and, um, and things like that. Um, so yeah, what are you, what what are your thoughts? That that makes me think of uh, we we trace in, in our in our thoughts when we're doing this logic thing we we trace our thoughts back to logic. I'm doing this because it's logical, but so many studies that are done, what usually happens is someone has a subconscious impulse, and then they attempt to make it logical. Uh, with their with their mind, and so it, our our system actually becomes sort of a self deception machine a lot of the time. But one of my favorite studies I mentioned this in the the talk is uh, they they got tons of people together and they asked them whether they thought giving more money to schools would make schools better would be better or worse for schools, and so they kind of split the split the group into two. Um, and they went to each person and they asked them, do you, th oh, and they also took a test for IQ for, for people's IQ beforehand. But what they did was they, they asked um, for your view and against it, give reasons, give pros and cons. So if you think there should be more money given to schools, give all the advantages of giving more money to schools and all the disadvantages. And what they found was people, no matter how high or low IQ they had, they had about the same number of reasons against their own view, the cons list. But the, the higher IQ they had, the longer the list was of reasons for their view. It basically, what they a lot of studies have discovered, such as this one, is that people with higher intelligence tend to simply invest that intelligence into buttressing their own views and reinforcing what they already believe. So we think intelligent people are going to discover more truth and some ways they do and in other ways they actually are very skilled at, at blinding themselves so it it it's kind of an illusion that we're under that we're these very rational beings in in contrast to that and similar to what you were saying i think of uh you know jordan peterson 
talking about um, helping people with phobias. Uh, for example, if someone's afraid of, of using elevators, you, you basically encourage the person to be a little closer to the thing they're scared of and a little closer. And it, again, is establishing a new normal. It has nothing to do with logic. That's very rarely how the brain works. But if you give it a new normal, this normal that every time you're in this situation, you're okay and you're safe, the brain slowly starts to accept that. That makes me think a lot about um, what I'm learning about trauma recovery. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a somatic therapist by, by training, but I'm, I'm starting to learn a little bit about it. So I'm, I'm aspiring to be a somatic therapist. Uh, and they talk a lot about uh, like the body memories and, um, and, and things like that. Like you, you're approaching the elevator and, and there's a fear. And you're right. It's not a logical fear at all. It's very irrational. And your mind might know that it's an irrational fear, but your body remembers something different. Maybe, maybe your body's remembering a time when you fell or when you were closed in or when you, um, when doors meant something different or, or, or something or some, something about it, something, something about the elevator scenario, uh, gives something to your senses that, as a callback to some other overwhelming, scary, frightening something before, and your body still holds that memory because, you know, back in the day, during the prototype trauma or prototype overwhelming experience, like your 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 whole person had to respond to that, your mind, your emotions, and your body, and sometimes the way it works out is that um, only your mind actually moves on from that situation. Only your mind fully recognizes that the situation's over like your emotions and your body because they're not able to like properly process like the stress energy from it um on one sense still believe that that the the original event is still current is still happening and so uh something like like this idea of gradually coming closer to the thing you're afraid of to cultivate a new experience for it it's 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 a very embodied thing like you have to engage your body into the new experience in order to move your body differently and, cre and create that new experience so that your body can know something different now too. And from that uh, embodied new reality, you have a different emotional response and then you can be more open to new thoughts or you can uh, confer confirm the new thoughts that, that you're wanting to, to have more often. So here, so, so hearing you talk, uh, I mean, I'm thinking about uh, this, uh, there's this little quip that I drop sometimes with people talking about decisions, like, I mean, I will say, okay, yeah, do your pros and cons list. They'll be maybe equally long. You'll go through the logic. You'll debate yourself. And there's a lot of, I think, anxiety that comes just from like debating within yourself because it can tend to become this obsessive thing, just like back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, um, which doesn't actually bring peace and doesn't actually bring clarity either. It just kind of like, especially if it's you're trying to make a decision between <laughs> uh, two two options that are both kind of equally complicated and equally good and bad. Um, what, what I'm noticing, and I think I might've had this thought start talking with you. And then I've started to see it play out more and more is that we'll come, come up to a decision. We'll go through the logic. We'll, de we'll debate it logically. And then we'll go with our gut. Like, we'll just like, you know, go with whatever gives us the sense of being right or whatever. Um, so I don't know. Is that something that you notice also, or what, what are your thoughts? Logic, logic becomes... A, a sense of reassurance most of the time mm -hmm. what for what our gut wants us to do yeah so it it, it at, we act like it's the dog 
and the emotions are the tail that wags when it's happy. So like we think logically and then we have emotions that react, but it's the exact opposite most of the time. We're, we have all this stuff going on in us and then we wag the tail of logic afterwards as a response. But it doesn't, it, we, we, especially in Western culture, we're not trained, and I'm sure you are aware of this, we're not trained for self-honesty, for paying attention to ourselves and, and that's both our body and our own thoughts. So we, we kind of, we have those moments, maybe when we're in a heated discussion with someone or where we've, we know we've done something wrong, but we're, we're not quite seeing it yet. Um, but the potential to know that we've done wrong is there. But we sit there in the logic of it, fighting with this person in front of us, justifying ourselves. But those rare moments come where we pause and we go, am I really right here? Am I really in the right? And and the conscience most of the time is pretty available to us as are a lot of just different kinds of self-honesty. And as a culture, I think we need to, just as human beings, we need to model actually paying attention to ourselves and our own motives. And I, I find people that do this over time, they get more and more comfortable with it. And there's, <clears throat> there's less and less ego <clears throat> involved, but it, it really is just another one of those scary places like the, the elevators and uh, other traumatic experiences. It's really just a place that if, you know, if we have parents that have been in denial and we've been around other people in denial and we've lived in these environments where people are constantly trying to trample down others so they don't have to face themselves. It it is quite the unfamiliar territory to be that self-honest. But it, you know, if if we can get to that point where when we're fighting with someone, whatever it is, where we pause and we go, is this worth it? Am I really right? Does it matter? And we ask ourselves these questions that are the ones that are actually going to bear huge changes in our life, you know, five years from now with this relationship in front of us, whatever it is. Uh, I think that that is absolutely key. And the logic, nothing wrong with logic, but we have to use it rightly. And, and it generally becomes the, the, the lawyer that's sitting there fighting for us and arguing for us and, and defending why we're right. But we haven't asked, did I, am I actually innocent? <laughs> So, yeah. 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 No, I, I mean, thinking, thinking the role of logic versus emotion, uh, I, I often use the, the metaphor of the, of, of the coast, of the, of the ocean. And I'll say, uh, you know, logic will be like, like, like the boulders, the, the, the big rocks, uh, and, and they're, 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 they're beautiful. They're, they're unyielding. They're solid. They're, they're sometimes merciless in how, hard and unyielding they, they can be but they but they hold their shape and they're they're tangible they're clear um and and the emotions are very much like the sea where it's it's deep it's dynamic it's ever shifting it's unpredictable it's really powerful you can't quite contain it and it can be really devastating and overwhelming in that way but it's also just like majestic and life-giving as well um and as i'm expanding that to factor in like the, your physical self too i mean your physical self might be like the actual like bigger coast like the ocean floor that gets shaped by both logic and emotions and and holds them both within it um and yeah you need you need all of them to to be the complete picture um but um 
I, I was thinking as you're talking about, um, as you're talking about the, uh, you said something, but but it was making me think about uh, why why people are defensive. Oh yeah yeah, like uh, why why people get defensive about about their views and why when those moments come up to look and when we when we have those moments to ask, hey, am I really right about this? Um, sometimes we would pass those up and we won't be able to look at that. And I wonder if that has a lot to do with, with insecurities. And it's, I, I've noticed that when people have really heated reactions for any side of anything, or when they have like really intense reactions or when they become like really reactive, defensive about things, I, I, I wonder how much of that is just sheer like passion or how much of that is really driven by like insecurity or fear or uh, either like I'm afraid I'm deep down I'm afraid that I'm wrong or deep down I'm afraid that you might be more right than me or deep down I'm just like afraid of you so I'm gonna posture or or I am like just stuck in like revulsion for something about you um, and I remember that was one of the things that really stood out when uh, when I was first introduced to Eastern Orthodoxy too was in general a very well there's there's a very there's very there's very strong convictions about about a, a lot of things, but by and large, a very non-defensive approach to it, which I interpreted it as just being really secure in themselves. You know, they're they're an ancient tradition. They they've had time. They've 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 gone through their their adolescence and questioning period, and now have come out as like this seasoned elder uh, of of traditions that just like I know who I am, and I'm confident confident with it, and so confident that I don't need to convince you of anything. Um, but I'll answer your questions if you ask them, which uh, after some other being in some other traditions was really uh, and was really refreshing. So that there's a, a story of a, a monk who he would go around the monastery and talk about, oh, I'm such a great sinner. I'm such a great sinner. Uh, and his abbot heard him doing this and went, oh, he's, you know, he's, he's practicing some, some, you know, spiritual humility, um, confessing and such. And the bishop came and the abbot, at, the bishop at one point commented on the monk and asked if he would do, could do something for them. And the abbot said aloud, um, no, you don't want him to do something. He's such a great sinner. And later the monk came to the abbot and said, why did you say this about me? And the abbot said, you say it about yourself all the time. Like I assumed, you know, if you were saying it, you were humble. And then if you're humble, you can handle other people saying it. And the monk realized like he, it was, he was doing more of a show than he was actually, you know, being humble. But I, I, I say that as an example of how often we, we, present something virtuous we present something that seems good or a justification that seems to be our true motive but most of the time we have something we're trying to protect and so and i i would say at, at this point in my life i i used to try and justify like oh there's you know being offended there's a time for it and a time not to but i uh, enough enough psychology and enough church fathers and i i've come to realize i i don't think being offended is a natural response. I, there's, it's, there's a time when we go, mm, this is wrong and something convicts us, but there's this other sense of offense, offense that is this 
rich indignation at how dare they do this. And I think that that's, man, if we can, if we can train ourselves to make that a warning sign to that, we need to be self-honest, it would be incredible. But we, of course, that's the point of that reaction is so that we don't have to be the point. Our, our mind comes up with that. Oh, how dare they do that? So we don't have to pause and go, what's going on inside myself. Right. And that, yeah, our so part of our self-preservatory instinct is to not have to change, to not have to be the one wrong, um, because and, and and I'll attest to this, having having gone through some some deep self-reflection, some personal upheaval, and some conversion experiences. It's stressful. It's distressing. It's really disequilibrating, and and it means at some point looking and saying, "Hey, I was wrong. Hey, wow, I might have actually hurt you," and that's. That's ter- a terrible feeling. Uh, I mean, the other side is great, but but going through it, it's it's really shocking and it's really scary and it's really overwhelming. So so I can see where yeah, uh, one of our deeper preservatory instincts might be to be air quotes right, so that so that I don't have to look within, so that so that I don't have to change, I don't have to grow, I don't have to take in new information, um, and uh, and uh, yeah. Uh, in contrast to someone who maybe is more secure in themselves or has developed to a point where they they have that emotional resilience, spiritual resilience, psychological resilience to where they can say, hey, here's something new. Okay, that's interesting. Um, or wow, I can hear something new. I can pick it apart and, and take what I think is beneficial from there and, um, and respect the rest. Uh, the, so that, yeah, so there may be some personal development that, that more people need to go through for this. So <laughs> I, I think what I hear you say, Shay, is that in in your average group of people with differing views will come to that conversation and nobody really wants to change. They want to see other people change. But deep down there, they're in in your average context, most people are not open to changing their 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 most fundamentally held beliefs or we could say their basic assumptions, or we could say their biases and prejudices, um, much less their political affiliation. Would you, would you say that that's a fair assessment? Yeah. My, my roommate and I were talking recently, you know, for, for conversation, uh, fighting is a, a great metaphor. Um, when, you're, when you're dealing with a disagreement, the problem is, is that most of us don't fight fair, and most of us don't want in the, in the world of truth, we don't want the best fighter to win. We want our fighter to win. And when you're dealing with truth, you, you're supposed to want the truly best fighter, the truth itself to conquer. Um, and so we, it's, it's funny that we say, uh, oh, he just has to be right. They have to be right. The truth is, is they, what we mean is uh, they want to look right because to want to be right is one of the most noble things that there is. It means that you face yourself and that you correct things and that you remove unhealthy things and that you challenge yourself. So to want to be right, both correct in your view and to be a real human being is is the best thing ever. But we, we, we really, most of the time we want to look right. But the problem is, is unlike a fight where you have to face up to the fact that you've lost, you know, you get in a fist fight with a guy at the bar, like, and he beats you down, you're on the ground bleeding. In the fights that happen with our words and our ideas, uh, which 
hopefully are more like fencing and more congenial uh, than a brawl. But uh, <laughs> you haven't been on Facebook lately. <laughs> yeah. In these in these fights, you can be in denial. You can be in your little world where you've won, and in the other person's mind, they've also won. Uh, but it it really, I I think bringing it a bit back um, to the practical of belief, it, it really comes down to people. You, you want to behave in a way that people let you inside their view system. So, you know, in that little bubble they have where they won the debate, even though the person in their bubble has, they won the debate too. But you want what what can happen is is if someone is genuinely open to your views, if they really consider them, what they're doing is they're giving you the chance to open the doors to their belief system, and you can come in and you can add to things, you can question it gently, or you can be a bull in a china shop and just destroy their views, as my priest calls it, ripping someone's roof off. And Ooh. so, a lot of what you're doing in trying to reach people in general in, in a plethora of categories is helping them realize that if they open themselves up to the points you're trying to make, that you're not going to go in and destroy everything. So the normal you're giving them is not just a belief system, but also character. So you treat them with gentleness and mercy and humility. You validate the things that you do genuinely believe are true in what they have to say. And after a while, the doors soften and they actually will allow themselves to consider your viewpoints. So a lot of convincing people is our, our own behavior. I see that. Yeah. And that's, and again, referencing the F book, like, uh, I mean, you mentioned like the, this fencing duel where, uh, you know, hopefully it's congenial. Usually it's not. And, uh, and, and I'm thinking too, like, you know, you're talking about we're being sheathed behind like the safety of our own words and our own arguments. And I think especially like online where it's like, I don't even have to face you in the flesh. Like, I don't even have to be in the same state as you. Uh, I can just like shoot my words out and drop them and run away from them. And I don't have to face the consequences of them. I don't have to take any responsibility for my words, how they impact you, how they impact the world. Um, but I'll still expect you to, to respect them and to validate them. And um, I don't know, as I'm thinking that that just sounds so absurd and like why would why would we expect that to have any any benefit at all um and then i can imagine there's there there's you know the the personal benefits like kind of the same as like smoking crack like okay that gave me a little bit of pleasure a rush of power right now in the moment so it was good for me it's not actually good for anyone else so maybe that would just be a good thing for us to acknowledge as we're like you know, out there shouting, whether we're shouting on the streets or shouting on, on the internet, like, this is good for me. This makes me feel good about what I'm believing. Um, but it's really, it's really only that. And it'd be fair. It'd be maybe a more fair, realistic expectation to say like me, me communicating this way is not going to change anyone. Um, because, you know, I mean, when, when was the last time you were like, debated into changing a core belief, much less angrily debated into changing a core belief. It's been a while. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But it just, yeah. Because um, like, like you were saying earlier, when we're talking about you, when, you're, when you're facing that angry person, 
um, because of our life experiences, our body experiences. Um, you know, I, I run into, you know, the, the angry, the angry, <laughs> I'll, I'll run through the categories, you know, the, the classic, you know, tall, white, angry male, or the angry black activist, or the uh, angry queer or trans person, or like the angry rich person or the angry poor person. Uh, and much as I want to like learn their stories and like get to know who they are as people, like when they're angry, I'm like, I don't want anything to do with you because you're angry. Uh, and I'm just going to retreat and run away. And I'm not really interested in what you have to say. Again, like you're saying, because you haven't created that space for me to be a person. You haven't created an invitation for me to open myself up. And therefore, my instinctive responses are going to be to defend myself because, again, citing trauma and stress and childhood and, <laughs> uh, you know, failures by our parents, like, I run away from angry things because it's stressful. So, I, I That makes me think of uh, St. Porphyrios talks about um, when you see someone who's sinning or failing or, or struggling in some way, you view them as you should view them as someone who has their head in a lion's mouth. And what he means is most, most of the time we want to judge and condemn and we do all this stuff that ultimately is really dumb because it doesn't contribute to what we actually are saying we want done, which is, you know, the person to stop doing that. But when, when you see someone with their head in a lion's mouth, your only thought is, how do I get them out? You don't go, oh, that idiot, how'd they get in there? Or, well, this will teach you for next time. <laughs> All uh -huh. you think is, how do I get them out? And you see the same thing with Christ on the cross. Here, here he has had the most evil act done against him. It's in progress. Um, he is suffering. He is in pain. He has every right to say, these people should pay for what they've done. Um, he would be right to say that. And yet, as he looks down, he says, forgive them. They know not what they do. And that is what is transformative to us. That is what makes us effective, is to constantly think of what will actually help the other person. Mm. And I mentioned that in, in my, my speech, that we rarely stop and go, is this actually going to produce the changes I want? And 90% of the time, that's a low percentage probably, but 90% of the time, it doesn't. But we we absolutely refuse to ask ourselves that. Is this argument going to change their mind? Is it realistic? In the past, has this way of behaving convinced other people? But of course, we can come up with new systems too, where we go, well, that's because they're closed-minded. Mm -hmm. People who don't see the truth of what I'm saying are closed-minded. Yeah. It's so, always somebody else's fault out there. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, and there's where logic comes right back in as our little tool to abuse is yeah. like, boom, I can come up with this system of experiences and project them onto this situation. And I'm right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I really love that, that image you brought out and, you know, thank you, St. Porfirios uh, of this, this idea of like, you see this person in, in the lion's mouth and uh, you know, and so, so context for, for this episode. So like um, that the day we're recording is, I think it's like week two of like a lot of protests across the nation, a lot of demonstrations around like anti-racial movements. And it just, it's, it's the only thing people are talking about other than the coronavirus is, is the, the protests and everything. And, and again, coming from a position of, you know, white male privilege, I, I have that instinctive recoil to, to the, to the, to what, to what's going on as like, Oh, it's big. It's out of control. It's violent. And like, yeah. And all, all of that. Uh, so, 
I think it's, I think it is really good um, to, for, for, for me, a white person and for other white people too, to be able to, 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 to look at it, to look at that, to look at what's happening on the streets and, you know, okay. Acknowledge you have some recoil. It makes you uncomfortable. Okay, fine. But to say, Hey, this whole people group has their head in the lion's mouth and um, yeah, they're going to be twitching and struggling a little bit, a lot and getting to know that's that story and that experience. And, you know, it would be great if our first instinct could be like, wow, how did they get to this place? Um, and actually pushing that metaphor, it would probably be helpful to realize, you know, uh, not only do people of color have their head in the lion's mouth, but actually we are the lion a lot of the time. And <laughs> it's, a lot of, <laughs> it's a lot our fault. So, um, but, um, and, and in that, that may be the invitation again to, to say, um, we need to create a safe experience. We need to create a safe relationship space, you know, and there's, there's work to do on both ends where, you know, we create for each other a space where I can actually hear your experience and I can not be threatened by the hearing of your experience. And, and later I will boldly offer up some of mine as well. And, you know, if we can share, you know, a lot of times, you know, when we can share like, like the, like the, the depths of like inner vulnerabilities there, there's a lot more relatability and there's a lot more safety that, that can come out of that. Um, it just, you know, that's not as exciting. There's not a rush that goes with that and you don't get to break things or you don't get to like discharge big energy doing that. So it's maybe not as fun. To, to give a, a very specific example, um, I was one of the people for a while that said all lives matter. And I was saying that all the time and I didn't get why people were so upset about it. And I had my stereotype of them being, oh, this kind of person, that kind of person. And then I finally saw the comic where someone explained, like if, if a doctor came to you when you had uh, liver cancer and said, you have liver cancer and you went, well, all organs matter. <laughs> It's like when when there's something that has a specific standout problem, you address it specifically and to react automatically to that with a generalization when it's a normal, logical thing to to hone in on a subject is very strange. But then there are so many people who did grasp that, that thing that I had to learn that grasped that, who don't understand why people are saying all lives matter. And they're doing the same thing. They're demonizing the people saying all lives matter as if they're these race, this horrible, inconsiderable, blah, 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 and they truly don't get it. So unless one of the sides is willing to be merciful enough to reach the other side to validate them, they're both going to keep butting heads, even though, in, in my opinion, I get absolutely where both of them are coming from. Uh, I think the kind of a, a practical takeaway I love uh, there's a there is a, a Buddhist Zen master Shunryu Suzuki. He has a book uh, I I might have told you about before called uh, Zen Mind Beginner's Mind, and he he offers this idea of what he calls the beginner's mind, which is in every situation you encounter, even if it's something you've done a million times, you treat it as if it's the first time, and it it on on one hand it's it's functional because that's really how we should be treating everything it makes us notice things that we might not have noticed before it makes us more perceptive and 
in a way more logical, but it also is humbling for us because it, it prevents us from starting to build up this self-status of, of how much we know in our minds. And so if, if in all these situations, we, we can start from the presupposition that there's probably some things we don't know or grasp yet, and we just hold that mentality forever, it, it makes a huge amount of difference. I, I think the, the crux of it is what I call being incarnational. Um, the incarnation being the idea that, you know, here's, here's God who is loving. And he creates us to engage in love, to give and receive it with him. And we decide to stoop down to selfishness. And God could rightly say, hey, you wronged me. Come back up to where I am. And instead, he says, I will come down to where you are. I will even hurt and suffer with you when I don't necessarily owe it to you. And he doesn't owe it to us. But when he doesn't owe it to us and he walks us back up to where we should be to be loving beings. And he also calls us all to be like this. And the thing is, is unlike him with us, we do owe, we have been selfish people. Unlike him, we haven't been perfect love. So we as humans and as Orthodox Christians in particular, if we want to reach people, if we want to save them, if we want to offer them something new, we have to authentically enter into the place where they're at whether it's broken, whatever is we don't like about it. And from there, we can actually walk them up to maybe something we believe we have to offer. But there, there's this sense that any truly loving, and I would argue humble interaction, starts with us going to the other person first, rather than expecting them to come to us, even if it's one of those situations where maybe they should come to us because they did something wrong. But I, I would say if you want to change things politically, always be the first person to take up your cross. Which is very counter to what most people do. And yeah. and come, you know, pulling out my, my psychologist, my counselor's cliche, uh, be, uh, well, uh, my question to society is, why, well, how is that working for you? Uh, yeah. yeah. So... Yeah. So noticing, I guess, yeah, just looking out and noticing, you know, whether, yeah, like you said, where, whether you're, whether you're conservative, whether you're liberal, whether you're Republican, whether you're Democrat, whether you're, you know, male, female, black, white, uh, and there's a lot of other polarities out there. Um, there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of tension and there's a lot of factors that play into that. So it's not just a, I mean, none, none of these things are simple. Um, I mean, you factor in like, um, like individuals, individuals versus systems, and then like, like the intergenerational effects of trauma and like, you know, systemic oppression. I mean, that just, that makes it even more complicated, but, um, but, but even still, I mean, it, a lot of these things do come, I don't know, there's a lot of moments where it's two, two people who are opposed to each other and like are inclined to see the other as the enemy and and that doesn't change like maybe one person gets the upper hand maybe one person enforces their policy over the other but the people don't actually change and so that animosity is still there that that hatred that bigotry is still there it maybe just has become illegal in some way um but with uh with what you're talking about shay and learning and looking at more i think more than just how do we change a policy 
Um, how do we like change as people? How do we as a society change our, our individual selves and change all together? How do we grow? How do we heal? And I think here that's that, that's a little more what you're thinking about. Um, what would you say for, for the listener who is interested in um, me thinking about these things more and maybe trying to implement some of these ideas? What would be some some practical steps that they could do to try to list, show up with people differently? To, to listen a little bit more, to, to have a more healing presence rather than an antagonistic presence? Two, two of the biggest things I would say, because I, I think the first thing is, you, well, I'll pre-frame them. The first thing is you want to hear them and you do want them to hear you. So the, the first of those two things is accomplished by assuming you can be wrong and assuming every human being has something to teach you. So when you, when you get into that heated moment, when you get into that frustration to, to pause, if you can get yourself just to pause and go, okay, I might disagree with them. I might think ultimately what they, they are proposing is dangerous, but for the sake of them as human beings and for the sake of myself and my own ability to find truth, what is true in what they have to say? What of what they're saying is motivated by something that actually is kind of sensible? Um, cause God, God didn't make beings that could be completely evil. We can't evil is always a perversion of something good and error is always a perversion of a truth. So even if someone is very wrong, there is something true about what they have to say, but there, and so that's, that's very much how you learn and grow. Like, I don't propose that just for convincing people. I think that's what a, a brand would do. Like a brand just wants to convince you a person. But, you know, you actually need other people's views to challenge you because, I mean, just scientifically, we're very fallible. Uh, but on the other hand, after that step, and of course, it's not necessarily linear, but after that step of truly listening and truly considering, what I would say is my advice as, as you want to be heard is give people experiences. And I would say that that's what swayed me to seeing a lot of truth to the social justice movements that I had dismissed before was, you know, people would say, oh, this theory and that theory and this group oppresses that group. And they'd use all these terms. And it just it just sounded like some new religion or cult to me, because that's how all new systems of belief sound when you've never heard of them before. But what happened was, was I would have friends tell me stories of things that had happened to them. And the stories I knew were true. I knew they were not lying to me. So it, it prevented me from doing a lot of the games of reinterpreting it to refit my own views. Like I, I had a, a black friend who was more conservative. He didn't like the social justice stuff, but he told me, oh yeah, my mom and sister, they get pulled over by cops all the time. No reason, no explanation. Like, And he just, he was just like, we just deal with it. But I went, oh my gosh, you don't have, in my mind, you know, someone might say that because they're biased or they might perceive this. But here was a guy who had no agenda. He didn't care about the social justice stuff. And yet he would say, even with in the, in the moment having no agenda, like, oh, it's no big deal. Uh, very dismissive of his own family's experiences. Oh yeah, we get pulled over all the time. And I just had to face the fact that that was the best argument for how true that experience was that I'd ever heard. And I, rather than just trying to reinterpret it, I had to face it. And so it's, it's, it's 
experiential things that are very hard to argue with. So, for example, um, conservatives, you know, will talk about the Constitution and liberty, and there are these abstract words that don't mean anything to a young person. But when you can go through the Gulag Archipelago, which is uh, Solzhenitsyn's book about the oppression and massacres that happened in Russia, and you can walk through how the government used social justice type theories to um, enact massacres, then you start to understand very naturally why conservatives are concerned. And so both sides need to drop the abstract, drop the figurative, this lingo that they have, and look at the other person and go, okay, I've listened. What do they care about that's true? How does what I'm trying to present them address what they care about? And I, I think that that's the foundation of an, an actually productive dialogue is to listen first, second, to be experiential, but third, to present the experiences that appeal to the truth that they do have already. Mm. And to kind of bring it full circle, you see this with Paul in Acts 17 when he goes to the Greeks. He doesn't go, you stupid Greeks believe in all these gods. Don't you know Yahweh, Jesus, he's the real God? He looked at them and he goes, okay, where's truth here? Oh, they have a statue to the unknown God. They wanted to make sure that they covered all their bases. So if there was a God they missed, they had this statue. What's funny is that's the beginner's mind right there. They assumed there was still something that could be wrong. Uh -huh. And that opened them to Paul also having a beginner's mind, also going, what's true yeah. here? Oh, you guys are open to a, some other God. And he started there. So both of their open points Paul used as the bridge to have the conversation. Mm -hmm. It worked. It worked. And, if, and there's there's a transition there, I think, from in, in how you speak. Uh, since transitioning from speaking to express well and express fully and express what you want um because that's and, and that's important that that's really vital it's and it can be it can be really super self-empowering and liberating thing to be able to say i've had these messages i've had this hurt i've had this pain i've had the systemic oppression in me it has to come out and so i'm going to express it and there there is incredible value in that and there can be something really curative empowering about that um but then at some point that this other dimension of now speaking, not just to be heard, but speaking to be understood and not just speaking to be understood, but speaking to invite change in the other person is a whole different type of speaking and really has to factor in, okay, if I, if I want that person there to hear me, how do I need to, how do I need to present my message so that they will be able to comprehend and receive it? And and then be and then be open to it, and that's and that's often going to be different than the most authentic version of me expressing it. That that's most true to me. Um, so it's, I guess it just ha has to do with like I guess you know facing up to what are your goals in all of this? Like are 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 you more wanting to express or are you more wanting to to uh, support another person's change and growth process? Um, you know both have value, um, but they're they, they do seem like they're different processes. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, th I think it, it, it makes me think of uh, some of our modern Orthodox elders talking about being kingdom minded, because you, you really do have a, a, a 
a shift in how you think. Even your logic takes a shift because your priorities have changed. And your and your priorities, especially if we we factor in a belief that we do have some kind of selfishness that ails us, um, that that desire to defend ourselves, to defend our ego, it can so quickly hijack all these abilities we do have to find truth, to hear other people, to express ourselves. Um, so it, it becomes so important to continually, uh, the Father's call it vigilance, to watch ourselves, to watch our thoughts, to guard our thoughts. Um, and that certainly applies whether we're talking about um, fighting a pornography addiction or whether we're talking about listening to someone else. Um, we, we have to put aside the part of us that says, I am God, serve me, everything revolves around me. How dare they say that to me? Uh, and and replace it with something something else that's merciful and listening and self giving. Yeah. So 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 yeah. So coming back to some of the practical things. So 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 listening, listening well, listening along, listening deeply, and uh, sincerely. listening sincerely. Yes. And uh, working to create create a new experience for for the other person that 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 will be meaningful to them. Um, you know, not, yeah, like, not just like billboarding, here's my views, believe me, give me money, <laughs> but, uh, but really inviting, you know, metaphorically inviting you into my house, come share a meal with me, see my life. Let me live with you. Let me walk with you. And, um, and let me, let me impact you with like the, the ongoing essence of who I really am. Um, yeah, those seem like some good. Good practical idea is that it would be great to see these taken and implemented on on a larger level uh and because goodness uh, i mean there's there's a <laughs> there's a lot there's a lot to heal there's a lot of uh, a lot of divides and schisms that it would, be, it would be good to see uh healed for sure um shay thank you for taking some time to to share some ideas uh so um, so your so your lecture again, healing the political divide. Is that three, four videos that's on YouTube, or three videos? And and it's an article on my blog, ThaddeusThought.wordpress.com. Okay. Uh, and I, I like I I if people are open to either, I usually recommend the blog post just because it's a little clearer. I went and revised some things, but yeah, it's video format on YouTube. I uh, I what this this if you don't mind me plugging it real quick. Go ahead. What this segues into that I, I won't get into here uh, is one, once you once what we've discussed is the is kind of the strategy the very abstract if you're into Myers-Briggs very n type like idealistic theoretical um, but we did get into some practical but I think where you where you get hyper practical is where you actually come up with in a in a broader secular sense I might call meditations for a Christian, I would call prayer, um, but where you come up with specific strategies of how you guard your thoughts. And my my current project, I'm, I'm almost done with it, is an article called Tactical Prayer. And it is a culmination of my studies of Elder Thaddeus, St. Paisios, St. Porphyrios, church fathers like St. Isaac the Syrian. Um, they're very practical, in the moment practical guides to how to pray in a way that is both spiritually and psychologically productive. So it, it, it gives you prayer 
and mindsets and, and training. Um, this is a lot of what the elders of, of orthodoxy focus on to prevent your ego from reigning, to prevent those reactions from taking over, to help you be more sober minded and to see other people for what they really are. So uh, that's, that's my current project I'm working on. And I, I find every conversation that I have now always leads to me wanting to present that just because, you know, it's one thing to talk about these things in abstract. I want to do this more with people or, or semi-practical, but I, th I think that's kind of the culmination is to integrate it into your daily thought life. So that's, that's hopefully coming soon to my blog is uh, tactical prayer. Tactical prayer. Sounds good. And that's Thaddeus thought that wordpress.com that's it okay and if uh, if the listener wanted to, to reach out to you just in general to talk more to seek out your 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 coaching services uh where can they find you how, how can they get a hold of you that'd be the same place okay thaddeus.wordpress.com okay. uh, there's a little tab at the top that says life coaching has a description of of what i do i'm i'm pretty open-ended i didn't get a degree in counseling, even though I seriously considered it, because I, I enjoy the the just ability to have open-ended dialogues with people. I mean, I love counseling uh, as a profession, um, but I, I often end up being kind of a bridge. So if you're someone who's atheist, spiritual, but not religious, curious about stuff, but don't want to be argued into Christianity, um, if you have, you know, you're questioning God, basically a lot of questions that even existential therapy um, I've dabbled in. So if you're one of those people that just has kind of an open-ended, I don't know where to start. I don't know. I want to know about prayer. I want to know about historical prayer. Those, those are the kinds of things I like to talk about. So life coaching ties very much into that. All right. With, uh, with a little bit of politics here and there. So uh, yeah. cool. Not if I can help it, but sometimes you can't help it. Right. So. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's it's the context we live in and it just it, it has to come up sometimes. So awesome. Well, thank you again. Uh, and yeah, dear listener, do check out uh, Shay's blog. It's the thaddeusthought.wordpress.com. It's great. It's enriching the videos on YouTube. I'll put the notes in the liner notes. And yeah, reach out to him. Reach out to me. Uh, we have been aiming for that middle zone where we see both sides in both ways, which sometimes can be offensive because we're not fully aligning with one side or the other. Uh, if, if that's you feeling kind of offended by one or both of us, uh, we'd love to hear from you to learn and learn more about your story and how we can better understand you. Uh, so do, do reach out. Our contact will be in the liner notes. Um, you can also rate and review Smart Council with five stars is nice and visit patreon.com slash smart council because dollars are nice too. And let's keep the conversation going. your feedback and invite you to share your thoughts about this conversation. Also, we'd appreciate your review and five-star rating on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Share your thoughts through email at smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. 
You can also find us at facebook.com slash smartcouncilpodcast. Please consider supporting this podcast with a financial donation through patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Our theme music is by Trent Price. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. Thanks again for listening, and let's keep the conversation going. Music